Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Well, hey, everyone. We're going to jump into our sermon today. I see what you did, Lindsay. Thank you for shortening the scripture for me for once. Uh, Yeah, man, I only got two weeks left. Thank you. Um, But hey, guys, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, and then we're going to skip down to 27 to 30. And so in verse 17 in Matthew 5, it says, Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Then in verse 27, it says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And and if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. You're welcome. Um, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this morning and thank you for this place. And I just, um, I just, I believe that you're here and I ask you to wake us up to your presence. Uh, I pray that, um, just personally, in the next few minutes, that um, for a topic that has caused so much uh, destruction and disorder in the world and the church, I just um, ask for your mercy and your nearness and pray that you, um, like I said, I believe that you're with us, but I just, I pray that you feel very with us this morning. In your name we pray, Amen. Um, I thought about chickening out during the passing piece, but I came up here, so I feel like we've really, I told the uh, kids registration people, I was like, I'm really nervous today. I might skip the sermon and turn it into just like a question answer session where anyone can ask any question they want, which is like, when that sounds better, then we're, <laughs> we're, we're in trouble. Um, I, I'm just really uh, nervous this morning, uh, which few things make me talk faster than sex. I just... It makes me nervous. So, and I usually like pride myself on my ability to handle situations that are nerve wracking uh, or awkward. Uh, for example, uh, this week I was working at the like getting. I was actually writing this sermon at the library, and I was at the live in town, Blount County. Um, and I was <laughs> I was at the library because. Um, multiple people in this room have told me it's a nice, quiet place to get a lot of work done. Uh, my dad says that, Aaron says that, Chad says that. So I'm like, I'm going to try it out. Like, these people love uh, working at the library. It's free, so I'm going to do it. And, um, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get work done at Vienna, but actual LOL. Um, 
totally impossible, but a fun time. Um, so I go to the library, and it is. It's really quiet, and so I'm sitting down, and I'm just, like, in the zone. And then, do you know what happens when you can, like, hear people moving quickly? Do you know what I'm talking about? And so I'm like, what is that? And so I look up, and I see police officers darting in and out of the stacks, like, right in front of me. And I'm just like, what is that? And then I hear behind me, and there's a dog, and I turn around, and it's like a canine, like like a, a police officer and their dog. And, and if you know the rotunda thing, the it's like the circle room that looks out over the water and the CrossFit gym. You're welcome, Chad. Um, and it, uh, it, it, they're in this rotunda, and they're just, like, going, like, whipping around it. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what's happened? And, and then um, the police officer with the dog plants himself in front of the kids section. And so it's just like, something is going on, right? And so I'm texting Aaron on my computer, and I was like, remember how you said this was a quiet place? Well, I'm counting four officers currently, but I think there are more. And she was like, you got to get out of there. Are you okay? And I was like, have you met me before? I'm going nowhere. Like, I got to see how this is going to play out. And what if the police need my help? Like, I'm the kind of person that they want helping in a situation like this, right? And so um, at some point in this text exchange, they, they get the guy. They find him and they get him. And, and as they're, they're escorting him to the rotunda to try to have a conversation with him, he is uh, very loudly saying, <laughs> he is very loudly saying, this ain't fair, bro. I was whispering. I promise. <laughs> I was whispering. This ain't fair, bro. I was whispering. And it was incredible. And I prided myself. I did not laugh at all until my mom called. And I answered. And I was like, hello. And she said, were you asleep? And I was like, no, I don't want to get arrested for not whispering. <laughs> and then I'm dying laughing. Um, because I don't know if you have ever been arrested for failure to whisper. Or if you've ever been afraid of getting arrested for failure to whisper. But it's every child's like nightmare, right? <laughs> like you go to library and school and you're like, what? something loudly. Um, and so anyway, that is not about sex or Jesus. Uh, but <laughs> I did want you to know that normally I'm very cool under pressure. Um, but I think, I think that one of the reasons that this topic for me is so nerve wracking is because uh, sex at the hands of the church has been really, really, um, is tricky the right word? Uh, I mean, the church has said some really strange stuff about sex, right? Like, and sometimes it goes further than just like weird or awkward. Um, as we've seen in the last decade, sex at the hands of the church has become um, incredibly dangerous and damaging. Currently, like in this minute, the largest evangelical denomination in America has uncovered a dense uh, history of horrific and hidden abuse that's been covered up for years in years. And so I think that that kind of stuff puts extra pressure on uh, sermons like this, uh, pressure to like completely and entirely undo all of the confusion and questions and damage of the church around the topic of sex in a 20-minute sermon, uh, which is an impossible goal. And so instead, um, my hope for today is um, to talk about those things, but really I just want to use these verses from the Sermon on the Mount where we've spent our, our Lenten season um, to give us a lens into the sexual ethics that Jesus taught. And I want to use that word ethic here um, because I think a lot of what the teaching um, in the Sermon on the Mount is, is about the ethic of the kingdom of God. Uh, the Greek word for what we call ethic is uh, dikaiosine, 
Uh, in the Bible, that word often gets translated as righteousness. Uh, in other works, it's not just a Bible word. Like uh, when Plato uses it in Republic, it gets translated as justice. Uh, by the time Aristotle's writing, the translation um, for dikaiosine is virtue. Uh, in political writings, we see it uh, often translated with the word order. Uh, essentially, dikaiosine is the thing about a person's life that makes uh, him or her right or good. It's, it's in essence, um, an, an ethic is the secret to the good life or the way to the good life, the way to order your life in order for it to be good. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus lays out the dikaiosine, the ethic of the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom way to a good life. It's where uh, Jesus lays out uh, the order of his kingdom of what it means to be human uh, and um, his invitation to join him in the renewal of all things, of, of filling the earth with more of the good stuff of heaven. And when we talk about uh, the kingdom of God in this room, oftentimes we actually sang about it just a few minutes ago. We call it an upside down kingdom. Uh, we say this because in, in the context of things like power and structure, Jesus seems to take whatever uh, the dominant thought is and then like flip it completely on its head. Like one of the defining characteristics of the ethic of God's kingdom is an upside down lens for how to see the world. Uh, Jesus, he starts his sermon, and we've started our service every week with the Beatitudes. It's a long, slow call to worship, but I think it matters um, because these Beatitudes, they are a very upside-down way of seeing blessing or an upside-down way of seeing, uh, quote-unquote, success. And that upside-down thinking or lens um, uh, also, I think, extends to sexual ethics in the kingdom of God. For example... Um, in first century Roman culture, uh, not too dissimilar from us now, uh, a common practice among people uh, would have been to have um, more of like a stinginess with your money and a, um, for lack of a better word, generosity with your body. And Jesus, he uh, comes in and he takes that thinking and he flips it on its head and he teaches a kingdom that is generous with money and um, stingier or more protective with your body. It was and continues to be a pretty revolutionary and upside-down uh, take on sexuality in the world. Uh, in our text today, Jesus is talking specifically about two things. He talks about lust, and he talks about adultery. But he, I think, sets up an approach uh, uh, to desire and action uh, in a way that I think we can apply pretty broadly. So, with that in mind, um, the ethic of Jesus and his upside-down way of thinking, I want to lean a little bit closer into what he has to say um, about unwanted sexual behavior specifically in our text from today. Um, but in order to do that, I'm going to rely really heavily this week, uh, again, like I did last week, on something I did not write. Um, so this is two weeks in a row where I'm like, if, if you think something is smart in this, I swear to you I did not write it. This other guy did. Um, and if you think something is gnarly in this, I probably wrote that part. So, um, but it's a book that I love. It's called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. And if you, like, I, I, I am... Um, I don't have a lot of books on sexuality that I recommend. Um, I think some of them are part good and part gnarly or whatever. I, I love this book. And so if you're looking for a resource, it's called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. He's a pastor and a counselor. Um, and I think it's really, really a special and good book. And he uses a term throughout his book um, that I'm going to use this morning that I think is really helpful. And it is this term, Unwanted Sexual Behaviors. 
Uh, I think it is a great way to think about what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 with lust and adultery. Um, in his book, Jay Stringer defines unwanted sexual behaviors as any sexual behavior that persists in our lives despite our best efforts to change it. So that's what I'm talking about today. When I say unwanted sexual behavior, behaviors that persist in our lives despite our best efforts to uh, change them or get rid of them. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, if you've been reading along with us, is three chapters full of teaching about universal human experiences. Jesus talks about things like anger and enemies and generosity and prayer, how to treat other people. And like all of these other things, uh, unwanted sexual behaviors are a universal experience. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but we all have them, right? You do. I do. Sorry, Mom. Um, Seemingly, every person in the news does, right? From celebrities to pastors to politicians, Every human in this room has been impacted um, by unwanted sexual behaviors, things that happen in our lives that persist despite our best efforts uh, to stop them. They're all around us, Uh, on the news, like I said, uh, in our families of origin, where we go to school or work or churches or friend groups. Some of you are are part of families that have been broken by infidelity, or uh, maybe you've worked in a place or had a friend group Uh, where the entire culture changed because of sex or something sexual. But they aren't just around us. They're also within us, in our own thoughts and in our own actions. We all have experience with behaviors that persist despite our best efforts to change them. And for a lot of us, they're like these shame and guilt pockets that live in our lives that we hope nobody else discovers. And then there's kind of a third category in this. Uh, Statistically speaking, there are plenty of us in the room who have been uh, impacted by the horrific reality of unwanted sexual behaviors done not by us, but to us. 83% of women and almost half of all men report being sexually harassed, whether verbal, uh, uh, cyber, or physical. A conservative estimate says that every 68 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted. And when you break those statistics down by race or demographic, it gets even worse, particularly for Native Americans and people with disabilities. The statistics around abuse are huge, and they are haunting, and they include a lot of us in this room. And I say that to say this. If that is you, I want you to know that you do not experience this alone. You are not alone in your experiences, and Jesus is not silent on your experiences. The common nature of sexual abuse and and sexual dysfunction, the universality of unwanted behaviors, is one of the reasons I think it is so incredibly important to talk about sexual ethics in the kingdom of God at a church. Uh, Jay Stringer in his book says that when religious communities practice shaming or the eradication of desire or silence, We collude with the effects of sexual shame and trauma. And I think that is absolutely true. When it comes to this stuff, Jesus did not teach eradication of desire or silent avoidance or shaming. He handles sexual ethics much like he handles everything else that he talks about. With a serious and stark invitation into the hope and freedom that is possible in the kingdom of God. Uh, In our text today, Jesus is doing um, a very normal teaching practice uh, for him, um, which is to take a topic or teaching that the crowd would have been familiar with and then expanding it. That's why we read two sections of scripture this morning is I wanted you to get that first part where Jesus is like, I'm not getting rid of the law. 
But then in the second part, he's like, I just make it a little bit wider. For example, right above the text that Chad read for us today, he says, uh, you've heard it said, do not murder. Like that's the law. The Ten Commandments says, do not murder. Uh, and then Jesus says, but I say, it's more than that. The kingdom ethic for murder is not just don't murder. Uh, the kingdom ethic for murder offers freedom and healing and hope and anger that goes far beyond that. In our text today, uh, uh, when he talks about sexual ethic, he's taking a similar approach. He, he took an Old Testament boundary from the Ten Commandments, like do not murder. The commandment simply said, do not commit adultery. Don't have sex with someone else's wife or husband. But Jesus expands the commandment. And he says, that he, he says that sex in its full expression um, does, not, uh, does not even internally in our minds and our hearts take what isn't ours. It's not just what we do with our bodies. It's also what we do with our minds. It's what we do in our hearts. I think he's saying, and I think this is very important, that a kingdom ethic means you do not have sexual access to places that you do not have permission or consent to be. And I think that's on two levels. Uh, consent from God and consent from the other person. And I think it is incredibly important that uh, pastors from a stage say this. For Jesus' followers, there is not sexual access where there is not consent, period. It sounds like a really simple rule, but operating outside of this boundary has done astronomical damage in the world and in the church. Uh, parents, a side note for you. This is how we explain uh, sexual ethics to our kids in our house. We say no one has sexual access to you unless you have given them permission and God has given them permission. And also, you do not have sexual access to anyone unless they have given you consent and God has given you consent. I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. And then he keeps digging. Uh, he expands the commandment to harness not just the body, but the mind and the heart. And he takes it pretty far. He talks about gouging out eyes and cutting off arms or hands, right? It's as if he's saying not to just take our sexual actions seriously, but also the desires behind them. Not just uh, what we do, but our desire to do uh, what we do, what is behind uh, the actions. Uh, as if they might have something to teach us about our lives and our hearts. Um, I've heard quite a few teaching. I've been involved in a church my entire life. And so I've heard quite a few teachings about sexual desire. And some of them have been really good. And many of them have been like these fear-mongering shame hurricanes that I'm like still trying to recover from. Uh, where someone just like lists every sexual sin they can think of and then just tells everybody to shut it down or stop it. It's like, oh, oh okay. Like, that's the normal advice on it. This is wrong, shut it down. Porn, quit it. Lust, look away. Some sort of desire that would embarrass you or your family, get rid of it. End of teaching. But when you look at unwanted sexual behavior, both inside and outside of the church, uh, statistics for pornography or adultery or trafficking or sexual abuse like we just talked about, it seems quite obvious to me that there is not a lot of evidence that fear and shame or just shutting it down is working. Jesus, he seems to take unwanted sexual behavior as, as a serious piece in the quest for the good life. Uh, so serious that he talks about dismembering the body to fight for something that will set you free. I don't think that Jesus uh, literally means to pull out your eyes. None of us would have any eyes, right? I think Jesus is painting a picture uh, that there is more to talk about and more to think about than to just stop doing stuff you don't want to do. 
Uh, it's like he's saying if we want to stop doing the things that we don't want to do, then we have to learn how to listen to our desires uh, for what they have to teach us. It's like he, he addresses lust, and it's like he's saying, listen to your lust. Find out where it comes from. Is it from your eyes? Is that one of the places? Then explore that further. Listen to your unwanted behaviors. Where do they come from? Is it from your hands? Then explore that behavior. It's like he's saying that the secret to dealing with our unwanted behavior is to find the root of them and to do work on that there. In my experience in the kingdom of God, uh, curiosity will always take you further than shame or avoidance. I want to take a quick detour here to kind of explain what I mean and use another uh, passage of scripture. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 16, I've talked about this story before. I I think it's brilliant. Um, Genesis 16, we find the story of a, a, a girl named Hagar. And she's an Egyptian teenager uh, who is essentially trafficked by uh, Abraham and Sarah. Um, And uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're unable to conceive a child of their own. And so Sarah gets a plan that um, she's going to turn Hagar into essentially like a concubine of Abraham. And Hagar will sleep with Abraham and she will get pregnant and then that will be uh, their child. Uh, The Bible is a very honest book. Like if I were going to write a story about the person who becomes the father uh, to the world, I'd probably leave that section out. But it's one of the reasons I believe the Bible is like, it's in there. Um, So Hagar, so it happens. And Hagar gets pregnant with Abraham's child. And then Sarah, who, reminder, came up with the whole plan, uh, suddenly gets very mad about it and completely turns on Hagar, abuses her. And so um, in Genesis 16, we have Hagar who runs and escapes um, from all of the trauma into the wilderness. And while she's in the wilderness, we find her in this like cyclone of unwanted sexual behaviors. And in the wilderness, God comes and he meets with her. It's one of the few stories we have where God comes to meet with a person. And he comes and he meets with her. And when he does, in verse 8 of chapter 16, he asks Hagar two questions. He says, where did you come from and where are you going? I think these two questions that God asked Hagar to help her unpack all that has just happened to her. And I think thousands of years later uh, that these two questions will help us do something similar to learn to listen to the unwanted sexual behavior in our own lives, whether it's brokenness done to us or by us. First, God asks her, where have you been? What is the story that brought you here? Why are you in the middle of the wilderness running away from something? If we are going to work on the restoration of our own sexual brokenness, then we have to be willing to look at how we got to where we are. How we got to the place where we feel like we've lost control. Or how we got to the place where we ended up with so much shame or regret. Or what events led, uh, uh, what events in our lives have led us to the desires that we have now or fill in your own blanks. Jay Stringer says that, that, that our lusts, our, our, our sexual failures or internet searches or unwanted behaviors, they have the ability to be roadmaps to pinpoint our past harms and our current roadblocks that keep us from freedom and keep us from restoration that we so deeply desire. I think that our sexual brokenness has so much to say about our own formation, about what might be lying underneath the surface. Uh, Dan Allender is a counselor an author that I love, and he says that the work of restoration can't fully begin until we face the problem. And I really wish he hadn't said that. Until we see where we come from, the full work of restoration can't begin. 
An illustration uh, Jay Stringer uses in his book comes from an interview of a guy uh, that photographs great white sharks for a living. If you're, you know, in high school and looking for a job, um, don't do that. Um, but he, he, he goes underwater and he takes pictures of these sharks. And in an interview, someone asked him, um, what do you do if you're taking pictures of sharks and one of them comes swimming uh, towards you? And his answer was so shocking. He said, if, a, if I'm taking a picture of a shark and a shark comes swimming toward me, then I swim right toward it. I face it directly and I swim right toward it. He says the best way to disarm a shark is to shift the script on it, to go toward it, not around it. The work of restoration cannot fully begin until we fully face the problem head on. But for so many of us, when it comes to this one area of our lives or our one area of our spiritual, spiritual formation, it's like the thing we're most avoidant about. It's the thing we're trying to shut down, not the thing we're trying to get curious about or learn from. It's a place, um, a place to see where we come from. But I, but I believe that when we dare to look at the story behind our trauma and the heartbreak uh, and the unwanted behaviors, then we have greater access to the keys that are required to do battle with them. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he says to gouge out your eye or to cut off your hand. I think he's saying dealing with our sexual brokenness is far more than just shutting it down. It's something we should pay really close attention to. That to move forward in healing, uh, it, it will take something other than avoidance. We have to have the courage to find out where it came from and what it can fully teach us. The work of restoration cannot begin until the problem is fully faced. I think Jesus is saying, for freedom's sake, quit trying to run from your brokenness in order to get rid of it and run toward it. If you want to get rid of it, you have to learn to listen to it, to find its roots so that you can actually deal with the way that it brings real and lasting freedom in your life. The other question God asked Hagar uh, is, where is she going? And when she answers, she's, uh, uh, she tells him her answer, and then God tells her to go back to Canaan. He says, go back to where things uh, broke and do work there. And I think that that's part two of fully facing our problem is to get where we want to be, it might require us to go back in order to move forward, to heal and repair, not from avoidance again, but from our places of, of brokenness. When, when, when God tells Hagar this, uh, when he tells her to go back, he then speaks like purpose and identity over her life and over her future. And she does this thing in the moment where she changes what she calls God. She doesn't call him her Hebrew name for, for God anymore. She uses this different word that means the God who sees her. I think the literal translation of it is, I have been truly seen by the one who truly sees. And there's no hint of shame in her words. I think some of the reason that we're so afraid to pause and listen to our desires or our brokenness and especially afraid to invite God into that conversation is that we've um, been trained in some way to believe that that uh, unwanted sexual behavior is like a hurdle or a barrier to our knowing God. But the truth is that it is a crucial way through which we're able to see God's heart for us. Hagar is a pregnant concubine running for her life. And her story ends in this chapter uh, with her being seen and known by the God who does not condemn her. Her story doesn't end there. Just that chapter ends there. Uh, the God who doesn't condemn her but who listens to her brokenness and who leads her into a new way of life, a new way of freedom, a new way of hope. And I think this is Jesus' desire for us as well. 
that when we meet the unwanted sexual behavior in our lives, whether it's what you wish you had not done or you wish had not been done to you or the people that you love wish you would stop doing, uh, that we meet these things with a curiosity, with an honesty about where we've been and where we want to go. As a pastor and a Jesus follower, it is so sad to me that sexuality gets treated like it's this category that exists outside of the gospel of Christ. That somehow we have uh, taken a God who is devoted to the restoration of human honor and dignity at every single level and turned him in this category into a God of avoidance and a God of shame. Like sexual brokenness is something beyond the scope of healing or hope or freedom or joy or beyond what we're allowed to talk about. Something we're just left to shut down in order to be in God's favor to do all of the other Stuff. There is work to do for freedom in our brokenness, but it is work that God wants to do alongside us. Uh, I'm going to finish up here, but I want to quote uh, Jay Stringer one more time. He says this. He says, there is no depth of shame that the love of God cannot reach. There is no story he cannot redeem. The paradox of the gospel, the upside down kingdom, is that our failures do not condemn us from him. They connect us to him. And so that's what I want to do in our, our, our last few minutes. We um, have a practice every single week here that we call Selah, and it's essentially just a, a moment and a pause, a breath, uh, to not move on too quickly. But it's also a time, I think, uh, to connect to God. And so I want to do that. I want to give you a minute uh, to allow you to connect to the God who does not uh, condemn your failures but who meets you in them. The God who um, uh, offers new hope, a new way, a new rescue. And so I just want you to spend uh, the next couple of minutes uh, allowing him to ask you the questions that he asked Hagar in the wilderness. And I'm going to pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the courage to risk imagination, um, to, to answer those questions, to like allow to bubble to the surface whatever right now you're like, I'm not going to think about that. And will you allow the God who made you to see you just as you are, who loves you fiercely just as you are? And so I'll ask the Holy Spirit to do that, to allow us to risk being loved in the wilderness, risk being seen, truly seen by the one who truly sees, truly loved by the one who truly loves in the wilderness.